Welcome to 5 Minutes to Midnight. My name is Mohamed El Dufani, and in this episode, Iranian academic Dr. Farhang Jahanpour analyzes the extraordinary protests that have been sweeping Iran for the past months. The protests were triggered by the death of Mahza Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian woman who died while in the custody of the Iranian morality police for being so-called inappropriately dressed. In his analysis, Dr. Jahanpur views the status of women in Islam as compared with other religions and cultures. He also says it's important for the protesters to have clear demands and that, rather than calling for an end to the regime, to focus on clear and achievable objectives, such as the abolition of laws that discriminate against women. Welcome to 5 Minutes to Midnight, Dr. Jahanpur. Since the protests were triggered by an incident that highlighted the status of women in the Islamic Republic of Iran, let's start by talking about what Islam actually says about women and the hijab, or face covering, and how this compares to the status of women in other religions and cultures. Well, thank you very much for having me again to talk about this very important issue. As you know, sometimes little sparks can ignite a major conflagration. Uh, as you know, the self-emolition of uh, Mohammed Bouazizi on 17th December 2010 uh, was the spark that led to a nationwide uprising in Tunisia, which in time toppled not only uh, a Tunisian dictator, Zainal Abedin Ben Ali, but also a number of other Arab dictators. And of course, many people are asking whether uh, the present demonstrations, which have gone on now for nearly a month and far from subsiding, they are spreading wider, uh, would act as that kind of a spark for a major change in, in, in the country. As to your question about the status of women, uh, one has to admit that, unfortunately, discrimination against women has existed in all ages and in all countries and cultures. Uh, it has been a feature of the paternalistic societies when human civilization was less developed and brute force uh, had the upper hand. And therefore, men dominated women and acted very badly towards them. Um, I remember many years ago when uh, the late Binazir Bhutto when, was still living in England before going back to resume her job as prime minister, but unfortunately she was killed. Uh, she was at a conference with me at Oxford, and she was talking about the status of women in Islam. I don't forget the way that she started his speech, he said that uh, the treatment of women in Islam, relatively speaking to other cultures, has been much better and more superior uh, to many other cultures and religions. Uh, she referred to the Hindu practice of sati or sati, uh, which is an ancient Indian practice uh, in which a widow would get herself burnt on to the ashes on the ashes of her late husband. Unfortunately, this practice uh, continued for a very, very long time. In fact, Mauls tried to ban it 
and it still continued. A British Christian evangelist in 1803 wrote that in that year alone, there were more than 438 uh, incidents of sati in 30 mile radius of Calcutta. If you come to another ancient civilization, the Chinese civilization, and this horrible practice of foot binding, because they believe that women's feet, if they were small, were more attractive to men. And so for nearly a thousand years, it started in the 10th century uh, by some dancers, but then it continued right up to the 20th century. It has been estimated that even up to the 19th century, 40 to 50% of Chinese women uh, bound their feet and the number rose to nearly 100% among the upper classes. Uh, in ancient religions, again, uh, the same discrimination existed. Uh, for example, in the Old Testament, uh, women had a completely inferior position to men. We know the story of Adam and Eve. God first created Adam in the Garden of Eden, and then God took Adam's rib and created Eve so that to create a, a companion for her. And this really showed that, in fact, Eve was only a derivative and a rib from Adam. A woman, according to the Old Testament, uh, was someone almost owned by a master. Uh, he, she was always under the authority of a man, her father, her brothers, her husband. And since she did not inherit eventually even her son, the practice of polygamy was quite widespread among the early Hebrews. In fact, all biblical patriarchs, David, Solomon, Joshua, etc., had multiple wives. Uh, King David is reputed to have had only eight wives, but Solomon had some 700 wives and 300 concubines. The question of, for example, divorce, uh, women had no right. According to Deuteronomy, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in her, she stops liking her, she gives her what's called a bill of divorcement, a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. And then if she goes to another man, and again, he doesn't like her, he can also give her a certificate of divorce and off she goes. At least in Islam, we have the Mahriya, which gives some protection and some form of insurance to women that if they were divorced, they were entitled to this. Uh, sadly, even in Christianity, we have this discrimination. According to the New Testament, especially in the writings of St. Paul, uh, wives were almost subject to their husbands as to the Lord, because it says for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior, which is incredible comparing a man a husband almost to the same relationship as Christ has with the church and with the community. So it gives man a kind of spiritual uh, divine position vis-a-vis uh, -vis women. As the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. So that the position was not at all equal. And uh, in fact, in later centuries, we have this incredible practice uh, of what is, has come to be called the European uh, witch craze, uh, 
uh, I knew um, when I was at Oxford, uh, Professor Professor Hugh Trevor Roper, who in fact wrote a very fascinating, I read his book about the European witch craze, where between 1450 and 1750, a large number of women in Europe and in Britain were arrested as witches. In Europe, they used to burn them at stake. In Britain, they used to hang them. Believe it or not, it is estimated, Encyclopedia of Britannica uh, estimates that between 40 and 60,000 women oh. were killed as witches. Mm. And sadly, they were mainly more adventurous women who put their head above the parapet and so, uh, you, you know, uh, attracted the attention of men. And this terrible practice continued, as I said, up to about 1750 middle of the 18th century. Relatively speaking, I think Benazir Bhutto was right uh, to say that Islam, at least the Quran, is better and more advanced than these earlier faiths compared to women. As you know, probably better than I do, the Quranic verse, Ya nas inna min O people, we have created you from men and women. So it's not a question of women being a derivative of a man. We have created you men and women uh, so that you may, and, and we have divided you into various groups and tribes and people so that you may get to know each other. Uh, the greatest of you in the sight of God is the most pious one. Um, but I'll come to say later on that even in the Quran, unfortunately, we have got many verses uh, which discriminate against women. But this issue of hijab, uh, which is taken to be a headscarf, or even in some Arab countries more than that, covering the entire body, really has no Quranic uh, authority. In fact, in the Quran, we have only few, seven references to the word hijab. And in the Quran, hijab is always referred to as a sort of fence or a barrier between one area and the other. It is never used in the form of a headscarf or a head covering. And besides, but we have got verses in the Quran which tells women to dress modestly. But in fact, the verse which they quote more often, which refers to some sort of hijab, is addressed to the prophet's wives. It's not a general injunction because, of course, Muhammad lived next to a mosque and he, his house was the center of attraction to many people. And men, strange strangers, used to come and go. And so Muhammad tells his wives to cover themselves modestly so that other people will not be able to see them. There is a verse in the Quran, O you who believe, do not enter the houses of the Prophet except when you are permitted for a meal and when you ask his wives for something ask them from behind and that's the word hijab behind not a veil on her pole, but it's sort of partition so that because i mean there are the wives in their interior in their house and all these men come and he says so when you want to ask them for something ask them behind hijab there is another verse which talks about modestly and tell the believer believing women to guard their private parts and not to expose their adornment so that it's not just covering themselves completely there are many stories in fact from the time of the prophet 
And even later on, some Western travelers in Egypt and places say that many women used to work, walk or appear in public without covering their upper part. And so I think the Quranic verse refers to when you see other people to rub a portion of their head covers, over their chests. So all that it really says is that cover your breasts when you see strange men. But having said all that, and as I said, the Quranic verses uh, gives women a, a, a sort of legal status. They inherit the number of uh, wives that men can have is limited to four, and also says only if you can be sure that you can treat all of them equally. So one can say that there are quite a large number of enlightened or at least more progressive verses in the Quran compared to what have gone before. But it would be wrong to say that the Quran and Islam believe in female-male equality. Uh, there is this uh, very important verse, famous verse in Surah Nasa, the women's chapter of the Quran. Um, you can probably tell me a better translation of it. God has made women a men a one. Now, there's this. I've in fact looked at a number of translations, both in Persian and English, to see how they translate this. Uh, Pictol, whose translation was uh, very famous, says God has put men in charge of women, because God has made the one of them excel to the other. Because Professor Arbery, who was my tutor at Oxford, at Cambridge, and wrote his famous The Quran Interpreted, uh, translates this men are the managers of the affairs of women, for that God has preferred in bounty one of them over the other. So the idea that the Quran gives total equality is not right in inheritance. They get half of that of men in uh, Dia, for example, or if there's a man is killed, the amount of blood money, so-called, that he receives is twice that of women. The testimony of two women is equal to the testimony of women, and so on. Although it is much more progressive uh, compared to the previous times, nevertheless, it certainly is not what we regard as 20th century equality of men or 21st century equality of men and women. The difference between Islam and the other faiths which I've referred to, which have got some very discriminatory verses in them, is that nearly all of them have given up those ideas due to the Renaissance, Reformation, the changes which have happened, both in Judaism, in Israel, for instance, or in among many Christian countries. Those verses are not being adhered to anymore. While sadly, in Islamic countries, uh, many people still abide by them. And I think the time has come that people should realize that verses, or even if they were revelations, if they believe in revelations, they are given for the time that they have been revealed. And now we live in a completely different world, in a world of equality. All these Islamic countries 
have accepted United Nations Charter, whose first principle is the equality of all men, regardless of sex, of nationality, of race, of religion, and so on. So that you really can't say that I'm a member of the United Nations, but women should cover themselves, their rights are half of the rights of men, and so on. Now, if you like here, we can go to the present situation in Iran. The discussion is often about the status of women in Iran and in other Muslim-majority countries. So it's very useful to put this in context. And it's also very useful to remind us that these things, which you know came in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and then the Quran are actually specific to their times. And I've often reminded some people uh, that, that basically uh, the difference between us and other societies, say in Europe and the United States and elsewhere, is that they have swept under the carpet aspects of the religion which no longer consistent with contemporary society, whereas sadly we just we take the whole package uh, and we yeah. do not consider the, the the time context, the historical context of, of matters. It's yeah. even worse than that, because as I said, really, the Quranic verses are much more enlightened. Yeah. They don't say women cover themselves, they give them certain rights. As far as the legal rights which are given to women, clearly they are not uh, incompatible with the modern ideas of sexual equality. And it's counterproductive because by not gearing the scriptures to contemporary times, what's happening is that, that in many aspects the Quran was more progressive than its predecessors. These are forgotten about because people focus on what's happening now. And That's I think right. Iran uh, is a prime example of what's happening now. It is not the worst. There are worse countries than Iran as far as the treatment of women are concerned. Uh, you only have to look at uh, Saudi Arabia and, uh, and some other Gulf countries. But uh, uh, Iran is in the news at the moment. So let's talk about Iran. Let's talk about how these protests are different from previous ones and where they might lead to and how they should really proceed if they are to succeed. The sad point is that women in Iran started their emancipation or their at least uprising for their rights from a very, very long time ago. Iranian women in their court of the Gajars in the 18th, 19th centuries uh, played a very prominent role. Some of them actually dominated the men and ran the country. In ancient Iran, we even had empresses, two very famous uh, empresses who were women and, and became uh, very powerful. But the recent uprising and movement of women for equality started with the constitutional revolution and women were always in the forefront of these social changes. From 1905 to 1911, when the constitutional revolution took place, which brought a new constitution, limited the power of the king, brought in a parliament, women were given much higher positions, and they were, as I said, in the forefront of change. This situation continued until, and the Reza Shah went even further, and in 1936, he actually even banned, much longer before than France uh, or President Macron, that women could not wear a headscarf. If anybody appeared in public in a headscarf, the police would pull it off their head, which of course was wrong because it forced many women who did not want to appear like that, they regarded it to be like being naked, uh, to stay at home and stay away. 
it, it was rescinded as soon as the last shah came to power and women were given the right either to wear hijab or not to wear hijab. But before the revolution, when I was in Iran, the vast majority of women did not wear any form of hijab. It was, it was the traditional ones sometimes used to come with chador. In fact, before the revolution, covering their heads became a uniform, became a way of protest against the secularization and the westernization <laughs> imposed by the Shah. Now in Iran, of course, we have had a large number of protests. The Islamic revolution itself, which changed government. We had the so-called green movement in 2009, when millions of people came to the streets opposing the what they called a rigged election for the second term of President Ahmadinejad. In 2017 and 2019, we had again major demonstrations over economic problems. The problem in Iran is that, as you know, nowadays, of course, many people in the West have risen in support of Iranian women, which, if sincere, is a very good thing. But, of course, Iran has been under Western, especially American, sanctions. So part of the problems are that Iran has been totally impoverished because of these sanctions. And also many Western countries and some regional countries are intent to split the country and practically make the regime to collapse. So that not all the support for the women's uprising is sincere. But I think the situation has reached a point that something has to give and something has to be done. I had always supported peaceful, gradual, evolutionary change. But unfortunately, after Mr. Raisi, again in a rigged election, because they really stopped all the reformists from taking part, his election had the smallest number of participants in Iran. As you know, the elections uh, have a large number of people taking part, over 60, 70% sometimes. But in Mr. Raisi's case, it was only just about over 40% of the population. And he was given a free reign uh, to become the president. So it really was not a proper election, but a selection. And because he comes from the right wing of the Iranian uh, political spectrum, when he came to power, he again tried to impose greater restrictions on the women. And of course, the death of the tragic death of Masa Amini was really the last straw which started this great movement. I think the current movement has a number of characteristics uh, which makes it different from the previous ones. Uh, the first one is, say, as opposed to 2009, which was mainly a political one, and an internal system, internal regime competition. Some people favored the reformists, some people the so-called principalists or the fundamentalists. This revolution, the recent uprising, is nationwide by all the spectrums of the society and has nothing to do just with politics. It has now gone to more than 80 towns and cities in all of Iran's 31 provinces, and people are demanding, the demands now have gone beyond just the issue of women's rights. They want, they make very radical demands, chant slogans, death to the dictator, mar by dictator, by, by, means, by which they mean Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, Mr. Raisi, the president, went to a very Islamic college, as Zahra school in Tehran, to speak. Believe it or not, the girls there chased him out and followed and shouted, 
Raisi Gomsho, Raisi Get Lost. And what is also important, because many people in the West try to uh, emphasize the fact that Mahsa Amini was from a Kurdish area. Well, of course, Kurds are more discriminated against in Iran. They are a minority. But I think that is only a side issue. The present movement has become not an ethnic one or uh, sectarian one, but a nationwide movement for female equality and for emancipation of the whole nation, basically. I was very heartened to hear some of the slogans which people in Sanandaj and Saqez, the Kurdish areas, Saqez, where Masa Amini came from, they were chanting, Ma az Iran namirim, Iran rupas migirim. We will not leave Iran, we will take Iran back. I think the another characteristic of this movement, as opposed to 2017 and 2019, is that it has nothing to do with economic. Of course, a lot of people who have joined have done so because of the economic problems of the country, which is part of the dissatisfaction of the people with the current regime. But again, as I said, it has now targeted not only the economic policies of the system or corruption, but the deep state itself, because the slogans are going for almost a change, the toppling of the entire regime. The other factor is that while in the past, 2009, most of those who took part were middle-class educated university people, or the demonstrations in 2017, mainly the poorer people who were suffering from the economic hardships, these demonstrations have gone beyond uh, class structure because people from the north of Tehran, from south of Tehran, uh, from uh, relatively prosperous parts of the country and poorer parts of the country. So again, I think it has become a more important protest and demonstration, including people from all walks of life. And of course, the last thing, which probably one can say that, uh, you know, distinguishes this from other ones, is that most of them were short-lived. And when the government, say, after 2017 or 2019, used brute force as they do, the demonstration subsided. This one is now in the fifth week and is still going and is getting stronger. So I think that probably some people are right uh, to think that this has gone beyond earlier protests and is unprecedented. At the same time, I think they should be careful that their demands should be logical and should not go beyond a certain limit which is unattainable. Of course, many people may want to see the regime gone, but I think at this pre present juncture, with the number of people who are now in the streets, that is a rather tall order. I think that if people can clarify, because again, a problem about this movement as opposed to previous movements, it has no leadership. It has no known figurehead. And as a result, it has no proper demands, set of demands, or what they want to achieve. But I think if they could classify, if they can summarize some of the things that they want, which are achievable, then this will be a major step forward for later demands later on. For example, the first demand that they should have is that this wretched guidance patrol or the morality police, as is popularly known, this should be disbanded. 
because there's no room for it in Iran at the present time for some women or some men to go and tell young girls or middle-aged women how to cover their head. This is nonsensical and this must be disbanded. The second one is that there was a law in 1983 under Khomeini, which he insisted, in fact, shortly after the revolution, I remember a big banner went in front of the University of Tehran that the measure of the freedom of a society depends on the measure of freedom that women enjoy in that society. And when Khomeini said that people cannot go to work without covering their head, there really was massive, massive demonstrations, hundreds of thousands of people. There are videos of them. You can see women from all parts of Tehran, all ages and all backgrounds, came to these demonstrations without any headscarf and said that they are not going to put up with it. But as I said, in 83, the Majlis, the Iranian parliament, under Khomeini's instigation passed a law that headscarf is mandatory. And unfortunately, they have been enforcing it. And under Raisi, they have been even going further uh, to enforce it. So I think the second demand should be that that law should be rescinded and there should not be any law on mandatory hijab. I think that third demand uh, should be that security forces in Iran, we had a law that security forces, the police, was not allowed to go inside university campuses. If they had any problem with students, it had to be resolved through the university hierarchy. But now, of course, these days they go and start beating up the students. I think the third demand should be that again, the police and security forces should be completely banned from entering places of education, schools, colleges, universities, and stop harassing young people. I think the fourth and probably the most important one which they can demand at this time is uh, that the laws which discriminate against women, like for example, uh, in child custody, like employment, like if a woman wants to leave the country, she has to have the permission of her husband. Uh, like uh, education, women were banned from certain subjects. Although strangely enough, at the moment in Iran, believe it or not, for the past 10, 20, I don't know, 15 years, the majority, nearly 60% of university st students have been women because we have this wonderful system of entrance examination and nobody knows who takes part, it's a number. And the exams are marked, they are graded, and the ones with the highest grade go to the universities that they want. And this has meant that some 60% of university students or women. There are more women graduates than men graduates, doctors, and so on. But in certain areas, they have been stopped. I think that these laws must be rescinded. And I think they should demand that parliament must pass laws which provides full legal, scientific, economic uh, equality for when men and women in society. And what is so encouraging is that a very large number of doctors, professionals, university lecturers, and believe it or not, even seminarians, students and teachers in some religious seminaries have said that coercion is against Islam 
and forcing the women to behave in a certain way is not Islamic, and they have risen up in support of women. A few days ago, I saw a statement by the rather conservative Ali Rarijani, who for twice two terms was the Speaker of Iranian Parliament, came out strongly saying that these discriminations against women must stop. Former Foreign Minister Zarif made a, was speaking with another rather right-wing speaker in a, in a conference, and he said the Iranian people, including Iranian women, will not put up with discrimination. So there are more and more people coming out. The former Prime Minister, Mir Hussein Mousavi, who stood for election as president during the 2009 rigged election, which brought Ahmadinejad to power for a second time, has issued a statement, which is really brave. He calls on the armed forces, including the army and the military forces, to take the side of the people. He says, you have sworn an oath to serve the nation, not the rulers. And therefore, I call on you to stop shooting at the people and in fact take the side of the people against the oppressors and the tyrants. So there are many good signs that the country, or at least a large part of it, is coming together, and I hope they can tip the balance against the security forces and against the right-wing elements in the government. And once that had been achieved, has been achieved, the road will be paved for much more meaningful uh, developments later on, and hopefully leading to a proper democracy. Thank you. That's very important because we've seen where there's been dramatic change, not just with the events in the Arab world from 2011 onwards, but also earlier on when the Soviet Union collapsed. Unless you actually have a positive program to replace whatever is being undone, then what happens is chaos and worse, as, as we've seen in the Middle East. You know, you might have civil war, or yeah. as some people in the case of Iran have expressed concerns that the country might split up along ethnic lines and become a failed state like um, so many others in the Middle East. Just one last question. Sure. How, how likely is it that Iran in the worst circumstances, might split along ethnic lines? Well, one major remarkable factor about Iran has been that in its long multi-millennia history, it has always been a mosaic of different ethnicities and groups. The majority of people, probably 50 or 30, more than 50% of the population are Persians. Uh, Persian means those who came initially from the province of Pars, and started the Persian Empire, and this is why uh, the Greeks called the whole country Persia or Persis. Uh, but we have about, out of 85, 86 million population, we have probably about 20 million Azaris. I'm, I was born in Shiraz, I'm mainly a Pars, but my great-grandfather was a, a, a Turk uh, from, uh, from Tabriz. Uh, according to my grandmother, her grandmother was a Kurd, so um, I seem to have both the Kurdish, the Turkish, and the Persian elements in me. But throughout all these centuries, uh, they have lived together very well, and all the attempts to try to split them has not worked. But of course, now we are at a very difficult time. There's a huge amount of attempt by certain elements in the West and in the region 
to try to split Iran and make it like, it, it, there was a plan a few decades ago, and they actually mentioned that they wanted to split Saudi Arabia, they wanted to turn Iraq into a Shi'i Sunni and a Kurdish area. They, they even had a plan for Iran to make a, a Turkish area, a Kurdish area, a Baluchi area, uh, and so on. Uh, because there are about 5 million people in the south in Khuzestan who speak Arabic, uh, so it is a mosaic of very many ethnicities. As I've said so far, all the enemies of Iran have failed uh, to incite them to separate themselves from the country. And as I said in one of the slogans in the Kurdish areas, "Ma as Iran namirim, Iran We will not leave Iran. We will take Iran back. So I hope they will have the maturity to realize that all of them are in the same boat, they sink or swim together. And therefore, the unity is very important. They should maintain their unity and move forward towards greater democracy, which will benefit all of them. Thank you very much for this extremely interesting and insightful analysis of events that are taking place in Iran now and also for the extremely useful broader context of the status of women in different cultures and different uh, religions. Uh, that was Iranian academic Dr. Farhang Jahanpour talking to me, Mohammed Eldofani, on five minutes to midnight about the protests and the general situation in Iran.